Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is Michael Lucarelli, CEO of RentSpree, to talk about trends that will shape the housing market in 2024 and how the rental market is playing an important role for consumers and real estate professionals this year. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Sarah. Great to be here. Great to get to connect with you today. Well, I'm really happy to have you on. So you wrote an article uh, for Housing Wire um, that we just published, and it's five trends that will reshape the real estate market in 2024. And I just thought it was a great take on some of the really important things we're seeing. And so wanted to dive deeper on those with you um, and talk about it because, you know, we're coming into 2024. It has been a crazy year in 2023. Everybody's like, okay, tell me what's going to happen next year. Yeah, it's a lot going on. And I think that even just with what we saw in 2023, the mortgage rates were just really out of control. Um, And then, of course, like we come from a prop tech lens. So um, a lot of that is just looking at how technology intersects with all these things that are going on within the real estate industry. And um, I think, yeah, like you said, there's a really important element to be able to understand what's coming up for 2024. And I think in a certain way, that's hard to predict. But I think we've started to see things sort of at least formulate a little bit where you can see an early preview. So for us, we just tried to share a little bit on what we were seeing for 2024 so that we can share it out a little bit more broadly so people can be prepared. Because I think there's some really important um, pieces of advice to take into account. I do too. So uh, let's dive in. Your your first one is about technology in 2024 and talking specifically about prop tech challenges and and profitability. And boy, I mean, uh, prop tech had a, had a tough year. Yeah, they did for sure. And for us to, I can't tell you how many companies, Sarah, have just, I just know people kind of just different startup companies, different company owners and founders and um, I've had people just reach out like, hey, can you like maybe give me some advice on my pitch deck or I need to get funding and, and things like that. And it's just a hard, it was just a really rough year for 2023. And we were somewhat lucky because we raised our uh, Series B in 2022, which was still not that great, but it was better than 2023. And so I think that, you know, when it comes to really the technology landscape for 2024, I do think that the environment's going to soften a little bit for them and that it's going to become a little bit easier, still not as easy as you might've seen during 2020 and 2021. I think things are going to be a little bit easier and really just looking at how companies that have proven value that have quality and they really bring important value add to users. Those are the things that are really going to rise to the top, I think. And you're going to sort of see that play out coming into 2024, but it's been really an interesting, um, just an interesting dynamic to watch with all the public markets as well. Because, I mean, really in a lot of ways, the private markets are a reflection of the public markets. And so I, I think like the public markets are still a little bit like um, in turmoil and a lot of the prop tech valuations and market caps are pretty like low compared to what they were. So I think is if we can start to see that sort of stuff loosen, then you're going to see a lot more coming out of the private markets and a lot of these smaller startup companies will have a lot more room to thrive. Well, and we know like um, technology right now is super important, right? Like so, and this is the time to be like investing in technology for if you're in real estate or mortgage, like now, now when things are a little bit slower or a lot slower is the time to do that. Plus you need those efficiencies more than ever. Yeah. And that's what I've always said, right? I think there's really something to be said for the people that can really get 
ahead of the curve and embrace these things, that just really helps you to differentiate and set yourself apart. And like, I know everyone's just talking about AI at this point, it's AI, 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 everything. But I think that really, truly, this is something that's going to be here to stay. And if people can actually leverage that to do their businesses more efficiently and more effectively, it's going to just set you apart from just so many other people that are just not willing or able to embrace things like that. But then even just getting back to basics, Sarah, I think people that just make use of just a solid CRM tool, like I don't even care really so much what it is, but just getting back to some of the basics too that people um, at times have been really resistant to adopt and really just fully embrace. Even just that stuff, it just makes a world of a difference when it comes to addressing and serving clients. It's a great point. So, you know, AI is one of the, you outlined within your five, you have five uh, technologies that you think will have the biggest impact in 2024 and artificial intelligence is on that list um, along with predictive analytics. So tell, tell me where you see AI being used um, in a way that you think is going to make the biggest impact. Yeah. And I was just talking a little bit about this with um, Jeremy Crawford on my, my podcast um, um, that's going to be coming out soon, but basically um I think it just helps to create efficiencies. So you're getting more time back and you're getting a higher quality. And so there's going to be just so many opportunities where if you're an agent and let's say your client is looking for something specific, like a kitchen with granite countertops, as an example, instead of having to go through listing by listing, and it's going to be almost impossible to identify where are those listings, it could take you hours of time to do that. You can use tools like AI to help you just zero in on what your client's looking for. And it's not replacing your job or replacing um, the things that you need to be doing, but it's just helping you to isolate those things a lot faster. So then you can move on to more fruitful discussions and just maybe, maybe closing things faster. So then there's a huge efficiency component that will allow you to spend more time and provide better services to your clients. And I know that's just one quick example, but I think it really reflects on how you can then just move on to providing a service-oriented business to your clients and just helping them quickly, giving them what they need and taking more time to understand them um, instead of like just scrolling through a bunch of listings, trying to find something specific that they're looking for. And those are the type of capabilities that will be unlocked with AI. Even now you can access those things. Also on your list are uh, augmented reality and virtual reality. And, you know, those have been around for a while, but I do think they're getting better and better. I just saw one this weekend. Um, I'm I'm in the hunt for a house. And so uh, I saw uh, one demonstration that they did that was so good that made me really feel like I could understand what the house looked like on the inside and really understand what the space felt like. And I think that's the difference between pictures and and that sort of technology. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that what we saw with some of the um, virtual and augmented reality stuff, I think there was somewhat of a boomerang effect, if you ask me, because when it first came out, I think there was limitations surrounding things like bandwidth or um, even just some of the earlier technology. Like it was pretty good, but it maybe wasn't as good as it could be. So a lot of people, when they first heard of virtual reality and they maybe checked something out, it, like I said, I think it was impressive in a certain way, but a lot of people were like, ah, eh, what's the big deal? But now I think a lot of the things like bandwidth and resolution are catching up. And just the hardware is catching up in a lot of ways as well, that you're really going to start to see a lot of people that maybe took a look at that those things in the past. And they're like, oh, what's the big deal? But now taking a second look at it, 
it's just so far ahead of where it was, if, especially if you haven't checked any of those things out in a while. And those are just amazing tools, like you said, for your search. I know like when I'm trying to look through properties as well, it's just amazing what tools are available to, to help give an idea of what the spaces are like. And I know that, you know, I mean, that's a, it's a little bit of a different conversation, but there's so much uh, PropTech now, you know, that helps like the valuation process. So like things like um, floor plans and, you know, what, what the inside looks like in a way that's just hard to, hard to get otherwise. Yeah, those are helpful. And I think one of the, I forget what the name of the company was too, but I was looking at a home recently and I, my, the agent that I was working with, he actually referred um, this tool that I can basically analyze the property and tell you whether or not an ADU is possible on the property based upon like the characteristics and the proximity to the main structure and things like that and maybe the zoning. So it was pretty cool that you can just like have this at your fingertips to get that very clear picture when in the past you'd have to probably do all this research and understand like the the zoning and the regulations and just the rules in your location. So it's just cool that like kind of to my point, it creates a lot of efficiency. So now instead of the agent having to go and spend hours trying to research these things or the clients on their own to try and figure it out, it's like this tool can just give you the answer instantaneously. Wow, that's so cool. Especially because, you know, there's so many like, you know, setback rules and all that kind of stuff. So if you had something that was doing those kind of calculations for you, I mean, because you can look at it and go, oh, this would be great. But that's not the same thing as like, yeah, you could actually stick one in there. Yep. And this example, I've, there was a carport and it was too close to the um, the main structure. So you couldn't turn it into an ADU. And it was just really easy to just tell that right off the bat. And I'll have to follow up and let you know the name because um, I, the That's name always escapes me. Our listeners would want to know that for sure. We can, uh, we yeah. can feature that. So what are the other things on that list? You have um, cybersecurity in real estate. So cybersecurity is just, it's, um, you know, that's not getting a lot better, really. I mean, I feel like um, as whatever technologies we evolve to try to, you know, make that better, other people are evolving technologies in a different way. Uh, what do you see in cybersecurity that that you think that's going to be really impactful? Yeah, I think cybersecurity is one of those things where unless you, you tend not to invest in it or think about it until after you already need, needed it. And I think that people and companies especially should really just think about making those investments ahead of time the same way that if you go out and buy any insurance policy after you have a claim that's already too late so i think you need to think about what is your cybersecurity plan and how can you just make any sort of small investments before you have any kind of incident and there are small things and there are big things like even today i have certain um you know, people will send text messages to my em employees from time to time, like pretending that they're me and asking them to buy gift cards. And so there are like small things like that, but then there are more large scale things that come with just password protection and security and data. And I know like, um, so I think that there's just, you need to make the investments now and you need to figure out what's the plan and what data do you have access to? What is the strategy that you can put into place to safeguard that? And how can you incrementally work toward it? Because also cybersecurity, it's not a binary thing. It's not like, oh, you're, you're safe or you're not. It's very much like you're never going to be fully safe from any sort of attacks or breaches, but you can make small incremental steps to continuously improve the way that you're being safeguarded. And so I think we need to look at it from that perspective and start investing early. 
I think it's so smart. You know, um, you know, a lot of, you know, if you're a mortgage lender, you, you have a lot of regulations around this, right? I mean, you have to have certain security things in place for your typical real estate firm. I don't know what those regs are. I think it's a little bit different, right? So much of real estate is more state mandated or just, it's just less of a consumer focus because, you know, they're not, they're not handling a lot of the same things. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's kind of the problem. And it's like a fine line. Cause I don't know if you want to just over-regulate everything either, but in a certain sense, you do need to make sure that you are safeguarding, especially if you have consumer um, data that you still have, and maybe it's not the same thing as a lender, but there are certain standards of security that you can think about too, like getting SOC 2 compliance or um, just certain kind of standards of security that you can work toward and they're not mandated, but there's certain like set, um, like, um, standards that you can really aim to reach and you can work toward reaching those things and they provide a lot of safety and security for your for your organization. It can also just be like in your processes. So I, I'll never forget, I had a um, someone come, this was like 10 years ago, come and do a life insurance assessment um, on me in my house and they brought uh, paperwork and then they accidentally left paperwork and they left the person's paperwork from before me in my house, all of their information and I was so freaked out. I called the company that sent them and I was like, this is just such a serious breach of everything. And, you know, when I go see a builder or when I go to some and they have you fill out all that stuff and it's on a piece of paper, I was like, where is this piece of paper going? Would I feel better if it was in their iPad? I don't know because I don't know who these people are. You know, I don't know what level of security is there. Yeah. And I think it is like to what we're saying, I think it is on the responsibility of the organization at the end of the day, because as a consumer, you're never going to really know and you do have to have a certain level of trust but i think for these organizations you have to have the integrity to understand the, the gravity of the information that you're handling and the way that thousands of people do trust you and i think that was one of the things early on with with my company rentsbury that when we worked with rentals and seeing how agents worked with rentals it was very much similar when a renter would fill out this piece of paper to apply you have all of their account information, their addresses, their social security number is on this document. And so we would see agents, even in the, the local Remax where I was hanging my license, there would be like just applications like sitting around on a desk at some points with someone's social security number on it. And it's like, this is like, it's, it's just not really respectful of the consumer and the consumer does have to have that trust in you. And so, you know, that with Rentsbury, we just tried to eliminate that where now we don't need to collect a lot of this sensitive information and just eliminating it. It's never stored anywhere. So um, part of that too, is that it actually just makes it easier for just the everyday agent to not have to worry so much about it. Cause we look at it from a broader perspective and we can sort of make sure that there are proper security standards in place that really apply to everyone. But it's hard to do that for every company and every process that you have too. It really is. Those are great examples. Um, just finishing up on the on the technology, data-driven property management, right? So, so that's a big one. Um, there's so much there that can be automated now and, you know, Rentspree might be one of those uh, examples of that, but property management is is huge. And it's one of the headaches that people want to solve. Yeah, and there's a lot out there, um, and there's a lot to kind of worry about too. I think with with property management, you know, like these are income properties, and I don't care if you have a thousand units or if you have ten units. You really just want to optimize your performance, and you want to optimize the income that you're 
that you're receiving reliably and consistently on time, everything like that. And so the more that you can really isolate who's going to be paying rent on time, how can you maximize your, your ROI for your assets? Um, that's really important. And so one of the things that we do also is um, we provide, a, um, you know, just basic data, which you think that it's easy to come by normally, but just even how do you price your rental property using data? And like, unfortunately now, and this is one of the other kind of pieces that I think is important, but you don't tend to get all the rental listings into the MLS today. So it's hard to find like an aggregated source of rental data so you can know, hey, how should I price my property based upon the market and comparables and everything like that? But we provide a nice rent estimate report that actually aggregates that, uh, millions of rental listings. Um, and so that helps uh, a property manager or a landlord to actually price their property appropriately, which we I think we take this for granted on for sale properties because the CMA is just so easy to get and the data is so readily available, but it's really not the case for rentals. Meanwhile, I think it's just as important to make sure that you're maximizing income for your rental property and what kind of rent should you be charging for that. That's really interesting. So that's one of the trends that you talked about here was, um, you know, you, you bring up um, MLSs and that they need to become the source of truth for rentals. And it's not something I've really thought about before, but um, it does make a lot of sense, right? We also see multiple listing services, even for, you know, um, uh, houses that are for sale, I think we're going to see a big change over this next year, you know, with the commission lawsuits. Like, what does that look like? I feel like MLSs are going to, are just like in the crosshairs one way or the other. Like, I don't think we're going to come out of 2024 in the same spot that we are now. Yeah. And that's kind of the big thing, right? It's hard to predict what those changes will be, (laughs) but I think insofar as it comes to rentals, I just think it is like another way to diversify and hedge against everything else that's going on. And one of the, good things is that rentals by and large haven't been impacted or explicitly sort of like mentioned in any of these things that have been going on with these um, claims. Um, And that's because I think that there was a little bit more, um, I think agents had a flexibility with how they worked with them before. And so I think rentals are still a really great way for agents to sort of make income. So not only is, I think it's safer from that perspective to work with, but on top of that, it's just the affordability thing that we go back to also. And that's really like longstanding. And if you think about it, people do three things or they're generally in three stages. You're renting, you're buying, and you're selling kind of like three stages. But people, they just like completely skip that first step of renting and they just kind of focus on the buying and the selling. But why as an agent would you skip the renting part, especially when more and more people are renting and there are commission opportunities available? So I think it's a critical part of housing. The proportion of renter households in the U.S. are always expanding, and that's not a new trend that's been going on since the 70s. So why ignore renting? And for me, that's what it dovetails dovetails back to the MLS, which is that the more that we can work with MLSs to really sort of embrace rentals and actually consolidate that data, provide clean, accurate information on the rentals that are available in the area. It just is a benefit for consumers. It helps agents to unlock more income opportunities. And so I think it's just a win-win across the board. Yeah, it makes total sense to me. And again, if the MLS has become the the uh, source of truth or data for multiple, you know, for more than just um, homes for sale, I think that benefits everybody. I don't see a downside there. 
Yeah. And it's funny because people still, when I talk to them about rentals, they still don't fully understand or appreciate the extent to which even agents work with rentals on a regular basis. Like that's been going on since before even Rentspree existed. And we've just seen that trend grow more and more. And a lot of the MLSs that we've started working with, ever since they started focusing more on rentals, they've actually seen an increase in the proportion of rental listings on their MLS compared to the per sale listings. So it's been a growing trend and it's been exciting to watch how that's uh, really been blossoming. So you mentioned affordability and obviously that is one of the biggest challenges right now for people. Uh, consumers, uh, you know, unless they're wealthy, I mean, it, it's a challenge either if they're renting or or they're looking to buy um, or sell. So, you know, one of one of the trends you're looking at is the fact that real estate agents are are kind of looking at those secondary markets, right? And not just looking at like even if they've if they're the expert in their current uh, market or or their brokerage is you know in one area. What we see this a lot. People are are looking farther afield because there's just less business to go around. Yeah, there's definitely a huge. Um, I think there's a huge need to kind of um, expand your geographical reach and the ways that you can cover these areas. And I think that's where, you know, I think if you have a good referral network too, that can be helpful. That way you can refer in and out. I think that's important um, and that can be really helpful now. But yeah, it just comes down to watching what's going on in the consumer side of things. And then thinking about how can you be adapting ahead of time to those consumer trends. And as much as everyone would love to just live by the beach in Malibu, it's just not something that everyone can do. And unfortunately, that means that people have to make decisions and you might just end up moving somewhere that's a lot more affordable, like, I don't know, maybe like in Arizona or Colorado or something like that. And if you're an agent and you can really set yourself up to access the data and provide those services to your clients, that's what's going to help you thrive. And you're not limiting yourself by a geography that's just only in your area. And, and like even um, my agent, he wasn't even when I uh, had him help me make a purchase. He's not even in the region where I am. He's up in um, the Bay Area. And he just was able to easily with technology today facilitate just all the information that I needed, um, even setting up like showings that, that were done with other agents in the area with me using um, a, a company called Showami. So he was able to really just help me purchase a home in, in my area, even though he's like eight hours away from me. So um, those things are all possible. And, um, you know, something as a consumer, I felt comfortable with because um, I was able to get all the information and the services that I needed from him. And he was able to provide those things. So interesting. So, I mean, one of the things that we've talked about a lot with the commission lawsuits is that, you know, agents have to sort of prove their, prove some of their value or not prove it, but at least be able to articulate it, outline it and understand it, right? So that they can explain it to their clients. Um, Now more than ever, this is interesting what you just said, because it's like that local knowledge is what I think 90% of agents would be like, this is what I bring to the table. Um, if you can find a way to not only do that, but provide great value for things that aren't in your area, that is a that could be a, a total win for different agents. Yeah. And I mean, like the level of analysis that I received for just like the pricing and the properties that I was looking at, it was like unbelievable from what I thought was possible. And I would never to be and like, obviously, I see both sides, right? Because I you know, work in the industry, but also on the consumer side. But I didn't even know that you can gain access to some of these things that he was providing to me. And a lot of it was him um, just doing work on his own and even like pulling in data and analyzing it in a way that I would never think to do that 
or even know how, but that's his profession and it really showed and I got the value from that. That's really great. Well, and that's why he's your your agent, not just your agent when you're looking to buy in the Bay Area, right? That's uh, he's kind of earned that title now. That's really interesting. You know, one of the one of the things that you um, you talk about the the possibilities and the opportunities in the rental market um, throughout this piece, which I think was really great. Um, you know, that that the interconnected markets and understanding the rental market is is on its own. It's worthwhile for for agents and people in real estate to do, um, not just as a precursor to like, okay, well, these people will become homeowners someday. Um, And I think that's a really interesting perspective and one that I think our industry sort of needs because we do know that there are going to be, there always have been people who are not going to be able to buy. That doesn't mean that they should, I I currently live in a build to rent community. Um, It's, uh, it has its ups and downs, you know, uh, but I I feel like there is a lot, we have to look at the whole picture and where people live is not just about buying houses. That's right. And a lot of what I've talked about in the past as well is just that there's kind of like, despite the prevalence of renting and the fact that it's so huge, I think like 40% now of households in the US are rental households. So it's a very significant proportion. And some people, whether by choice or by just affordability force them they they're going to be renting maybe even their entire lifetime now that's just the reality of it and i think despite those facts there's still even the stigma around renting like oh you need to be like buying a home and just like i think changing that mindset is the first important thing not only for the real estate industry but for consumers as well that hey like you're renting like it's okay like you pretty much you have to rent no matter what once you're when you're younger And then if you continue, so what, that's fine. There's a lot of benefits to it. And a lot of those things, they provide mobility. And the other thing that we haven't talked about with kind of like the, um, like people moving around to different areas, that's all like available now due to a lot of the jobs being remote today. And that's also something that I don't think is going to change as a business owner and having employees that are remote. I don't see that changing either. And so that all lends itself to renting. And so I think we need to change the mindset about renting and just make it into something that's just accepted as, hey, like you have to live somewhere, you're renting, and that's great. And there's a lot of benefits to that as well. I think, you know, if you go to the big cities, if you're in New York, I have two kids in New York, and and that's a much more um, prevalent mindset there, right? I mean, people could rent 30 years there, 40 years, and um, no one looks down on you like, oh, you're just so, I think out in the suburbs, I'm, I'm in Dallas, I think that there's more stigma there because it's like, well, you know, it seems like there are things that are affordable. Uh, things get una- more unaffordable all the time. But um, I do think that that's, you know, uh, many places in Europe, obviously, but like, especially the big cities here, that's that's a much more prevalent thing, um, that a lifestyle that people have. Well, I think it's also interesting because when you have that stigma and it's so pervasive, especially like you said, in some of like um, areas that are like outside of cities, people, they also tend to like, oh, well, I, I, I want to like, make sure I just own a home before I start a family type of thing too. And I think even that has these far reaching impacts that it's almost impossible to predict how that kind of comes into play, but people need to be comfortable with like, Hey, I'm, I'm renting, but I'm not going to put my, the rest of my life on pause because of that. Cause you can't, cause what's going to happen. Like you're never going to have a family or never have kids or something. So I think also making just people comfortable with the fact that, yeah, you're renting and that doesn't mean you have to put anything else on pause. There's no reason whatsoever that that should impact some of those other decisions in your life. 
Yeah, that's a really interesting point. You know, uh, I am a perfect example of this. Uh, I had kids young and uh, yes, we were poor. Uh, my husband was in graduate school at the time and uh, we did not buy a house until we had all four kids. So, you know, not easy. And there's some pros and cons to that. But uh, had we been able to afford it, we would have loved to. But if we had waited, it would have been a significant period of time we would have had to wait. Your last point is like, if people do want to transition uh, into homeownership, there's now a lot of technology that is counting what they do as a renter so that that, um, you know, counts into their credit. And, and for a long time, all of this was going nowhere. You could be the best renter in the world and it wasn't helping you, um, you know, like it should be building your credit file if you're, if you're consistently doing a great job there. Yeah. And I think a lot of that also, if I take a step back as well, I think it relates to um, the fact that when you really start seeing um, rent prices increase also, that means that you're just spending even more of your disposable income or rather you're having even less disposable income than you did before to even be saving for things like a down payment. And so you're really just taking these large quantities of your income and earnings and that's going right to your rent. You have less ability to even save for a down payment. And then, like you said, on like a mortgage that you're paying, if you're paying a mortgage on time consistently, this is reported to the credit bureaus and it contributes to a positive credit history. But these on-time rental payments that you might be making for years and years and years, there's literally no benefit that most people gain from that because that information simply doesn't get reported to any of the credit bureaus, which even comes back to some of the um, technology automation in property management where these tools just literally aren't available even if a landlord or a manager did want to report those on-time payments to the credit bureau, there's almost no way for that to happen. And so um, I think that's a really important piece. That's something that we've uh, stepped in and started reporting rental payments that are made on time to the credit bureau, which effectively has the ability to really boost an applicant's or a renter's credit score so that, yeah, maybe they might be in a better position to qualify for a mortgage or maybe they can qualify for a better rental at, at a certain point if they want to upgrade. And so there's a lot of benefits from from doing things like that and putting people in a financial position where they might have more flexibility and they have more options at their disposal. Mike, thanks so much for being on today. This is such an interesting uh, part of the real estate um, you know, landscape that we want to talk about. And um, I really appreciate you coming on, sharing your insights and, and giving us uh, these things to look forward to in 2024. That's great. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.